The COVID-19 pandemic is a unique moment in our history. These are the stories from the front lines, featuring visits with the heroes who are making a difference when we need them the most, and ideas on how to stay well and balanced as we learn to live in physical distance. From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, this is The Front Lines of COVID, a surgery set series. I'm your host, Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon trying my best. Welcome. We've spent the past nine weeks talking about the effects of the pandemic on our hospitals, our call schedules, our engineering. We've changed so much about how we care for patients sick with the virus and all the other patients who still need medical care. But we've not talked too much about how the pandemic has changed care for patients with mental illness or on how to address the toll the pandemic takes on our and our patients' mental well-being. As time goes on and the world as we know it keeps not roaring back, that toll grows. Fortunately, just as we medical doctors are adapting our work to accommodate the new normal, so our mental health professionals are stepping up to deal with the emotional consequences. To find out more, I talked with Gwyn Shell, a PhD clinical psychologist and licensed professional counselor here at UW Health. Gwyn's husband and I actually went to high school together. I was in their wedding, and we've all been friends for decades at this point. They live just down the street. But this is the first time we've had a chance to talk since lockdown started. As you'll hear, she's been busy. So Gwyn, it's so great to uh, get you on the podcast. This is actually like the first opportunity I've had to see you, I think, since I was at your guys' Christmas party. I know. Um, it's such a bizarre thing. We live a mile apart and um, it's, it, t- it takes Zoom these days to get together. I am just fascinated by the work that, that you are doing though. You know, I, I feel as though on the podcast, we've talked so much about the sort of medical elements of things, how we prepare for a surge in the ICUs, how we prioritize surgical cases. But as I think probably happens all too often, we've sort of neglected up to this point that the mental health implications of living in a pandemic, both kind of what that looks like for patients and also what it looks like for uh, the people who are providing care to these patients. So uh, just tell me a little bit about like, what was your day in February? And, and what does your day look like now? Like how, how is change, how is providing mental health care changed for you? Right. Well, I mean, first off, I got to commute to my office, so that's a big difference. <laughs> I don't. You're still I, commuting, right? Let's just like yeah. up a flight of stairs now. Yeah, I say like, okay, bye. I'm taking my coffee and going to work, and I walk up a flight of stairs, so that's pretty fun. But yeah, usually I would get to work and I'd sit down at my desk, turn everything on. The days are kind of the same as far as my schedule is. I see people in the morning and then I have my break for lunch. I've got some admin time and then I see people in the afternoon. I do, I have about seven 50 minute sessions. I get two intakes a week. The difference though, I think the big difference is that back in February, I could probably guess that I'd have a few people cancel during the week. I'd have some openings in my schedule and things like that. Now, nobody, nobody can't, there's no cancellations. Everybody's there ready for me to call them and they're ready to talk. And I mean, I think it's crazy, but I don't have any openings until the beginning of July. And are you doing now, you used to in person exclusively totally. or? Yeah. And um, I would run a group therapy on Thursday afternoons. Yeah. Everything was absolutely in person. And for within the hospital system, that's all that the 
insurance companies would would bill for or that we could bill for. So. So what was that transition like? I mean, was it you just woke up one morning and they're like, okay, now everything's by phone or video? Yeah. Like video sort of has staged in, right? As like time has gone on. We woke up just like, I think just like all of us. And it was like, hey, if you feel under the weather, don't come to any of the buildings. And then within that first week, they were phasing out all of our appointments, changing them to telemedicine. And so I think like it took about a week and a half to get it switched over to telephones. Wow. Yeah, I think the big thing was that like in the beginning, we just wanted to make sure because I mean, with it being a pandemic with everybody being so unsure about what was happening that we just wanted to make sure that like, all of our people got some place to check in with somebody to listen to them, somebody to be there for them, and to like have some sort of normalcy in everybody's life. At first, there wasn't they went back and forth about how they would bill for it, but there was never a question of canceling the appointments, which I thought was really lovely. Many of your patients are, are patients that you had before the pandemic, you said, so you get one or two new patients in a week, but a lot of these are established patients. So you've transitioned from taking care of them one-on-one -on -one in person in an office to, yeah. to phones to, to now video. Yeah. What's that like? I mean, how does that change the relationship with someone that you know? And then what, what is it like to meet a new client for the first time, knowing yeah. only their voice or just seeing them on a screen? It's funny because the people that I've worked with for a really long time, I mean, psychotherapy is just two people in a room. It's funny with the people that I've worked with for a long time, I could imagine how they looked when they were saying things. Mm. But it was still pretty, it's still pretty tiring. Like there's something about being in the room with another person that's really powerful that you just, you can't get over the phone or over the video. But with it changing to virtual, I feel like everybody, we did like miss seeing each other's faces. So it's been nice. It's been nice to transition back. And then there's been people that we're, we're like meeting for the first time over an internet chat and that's, that's different. I think those are the people that I, I'm like, oh, I wonder what it's going to be like the first time they're actually in my office. Like they might have a hard time getting used to driving to therapy. What has been the effect of the pandemic on, on the people you're helping? Uh, is it, you know, obviously a lot of these folks, you know, they were seeing you before. So they, they already had some sort of mental health uh, concern and you were already engaged in that. What's been the effect of, of the lockdown pandemic, like complete topsy-turvy economy on, on people's mental health? And, and are, you know, are the people who are coming to you new, are you seeing anything sort of different in the way that, that people are responding in this time than they might in sort of the normal world? I think, you know what, there's like some big themes that come out of it. One big theme is that, you know, this idea that in the past, when they had experienced anxiety or depression or something like that, it was just them experiencing it, right? Like it was a very, almost isolating thing. And now mm -hmm. to be experiencing anxiety or, or depression and experiencing all the emotions that they're experiencing at the same time that the whole world is experiencing it, it's, it, makes it, it makes them feel not alone. They feel really, it, it's just, it's a different experience for them than they'd ever had with their mental health stuff before. And I, I think that that's huge. You know, the other thing is that for people that I've been working with for a long time, they have tools and skills that we've been building over time. So for them in this situation, they're kind of like, wow, like I have these overwhelming feelings and then I, 
I know, you know, either to distract myself or to do something or to accept that I can be depressed because it's a pandemic. It's sort of both sides of the coin, feeling this sort of deep connection in their emotions to other people, but also being able to have a greater acceptance of their emotions because of that. A good friend of mine said that this this is, you know, a, a once a century, the, the introverted nihilists with apocalyptic tendencies like really have their moments, you know, <laughs> like... <laughs> I know, I know. It's that's been a funny thing because like all of my people that are introverts, they're like, okay, so I'm an introvert, but I still liked a little bit of human contact. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, I usually tell them like, well, like, you're not a hermit, so I mean, you did choose to live in communities with other people. So even if you only wanted to see your coworkers or a few friends. So if if you know the sort of the depression and anxiety folks like maybe are to some degree, they're sort of maybe primed to sort of have felt this way before. They have some tools to, to fall back on. Are there diagnoses or, or types of patients that you find are have, sort of having a, an extra hard time in these this situation? Definitely people with OCD. It's, it's a bit harder, you know, because there's that thought of like, even no matter how much protective things they wear, like gloves, masks, like you know, it, you know, if you're leaving your house, we're all thinking about it and they're thinking about it even more. So being able to label those thoughts and step back from them, but also be able to honor the reality of those thoughts right now. Right. Like washing your hands 20 times a day now is actually just good yeah. practice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like wearing a mask outside. I think like in February, if somebody came into my office wearing a mask, I'd be like, wow. Okay. But like, now I'm like, no, I wear a mask too. It's cool. What about, you know, new patients? Are you seeing people who are coming in and saying like, I felt like I was in a pretty good place and then the pandemic hit and now, now I'm really, really struggling? Yeah. I think for that situation, a lot, it's a lot more like there might've been, like you said, like I was managing. I was managing. I think that's the big thing is to say that you were managing. Yeah. And you were managing fine. And then a pandemic happened and that's okay. And people, also people that I haven't seen for a while. So people that got really stable and they were fine. They're sending messages and they're calling and saying, hey, I need, a, I need to check in. I need to talk to you about how I'm feeling. And just, you know, for them too, I'm like, it's normal for you to feel this increased anxiety or depression right now because we're all dealing with it. Having never done therapy myself, for better or worse, you know, can you just talk a little bit about kind of what, what the process is when you're, you're counseling someone who's coming to you with anxiety about life in general or the pandemic specifically? So what's the process of, of validating their feelings and giving them these tools? Yeah, I mean, I'll preface it to say with like every, every therapist kind of has their own spin on it, their own spin on their way of teaching things and their way of, of wording things. For me, being a PhD trained therapist, I always tell people I'm trained in a lot of different modalities. So for me, it's finding the different theoretical sort of modality that fits you. And a lot of these things have the same underpinnings of first sort of psychoeducating the person. What does anxiety look like? What are the physiological responses? We know that it's the body's fight or flight response to a situation that you perceive as threatening. And something about these situations, it feels to your body like you're being chased by a tiger through the jungle or 
whatever you want to say with that. Mm -hmm. And so in the beginning, it's a lot about sort of normalizing these emotions as normal emotions, because all human emotions are normal. But saying maybe the thing is that we want to be able to step back, step out of autopilot and observe them. And then once we're able to do that and we're not lost in autopilot, we can then have a little bit more onus. We can sort of decide how to act or react in the situation. We can sort of have some space there to maybe decrease the intensity of the emotion or to decrease the duration of the emotion. And I usually tell people that I, for myself, I tend to, you know, look in, look for patterns. And so having them say like, I want to understand the pattern of their anxiety because by understanding the pattern, then we can maybe take, take something that feels unpredictable and have some predictability there, you know, kind of work in that space of, and knowing that we're kind of following the correct route. And then I tell them, and if you want to, then we can go deeper. Then we can figure out why these patterns are there. And that's that they're normal to be there for whatever has happened in your life. And then now that we know why, uh, we can say, okay, well now what, what do we do with it? What do we do with these patterns that you have? It's a lot to do on uh, zoom. <laughs> yes. Yes. Wow. So let's do even in a therapy office. So yeah. how frequently do you typically see patients? Like, is this something that like you're seeing people kind of once a week at first and then space it out or is it, I, 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 I imagine it's different for every patient, right? Yeah, I mean, I would prefer to see people weekly at first and then start spaced out, but like within our within our current model, we see people bi-weekly, so every other week. And then usually I see them every other week for like six months. It could be, depending upon how intense it is, six months to a year. Wow. And then you start spacing it out. And, you know, I always say, it's okay. We can space it out if it's too much. We can... We can move it all around. There's no statement of how long you have to be in therapy or what it has to look like. When people get referred to you, like, what is that process? Like, how, how are people finding their way into your system? As you know, like, Madison, Wisconsin is totally guided by the system of insurance that we have. So a lot of times it's they'll see my picture and my description of the type of therapy that I do on the UW Health website, yeah. um, or uh, I work a lot with um, the psychiatrists in the psychiatry department, and so they kind of know the different things that I specialize in or the type of people that I work really well with, and so they'll send me people that, usually the statement is, you know who you'd work well with? You'd work well with Gwen, and then I end up with somebody who's like, I don't know, I was just sent to you, so nice. it's good. And are people like self-referring or there's a crisis line, right? There's, there's some way for people who yes. are particularly now having a hard time to sort of like get, get access to services quickly and then kind of get plugged in as needed. Is that? That's that. Yeah. So that's like a special thing that the psychiatry and psychology department decided to do right now during the pandemic was to actually, the crisis line is for doctors and nurses and people within the medical system at UW health. So uh, just to kind of say that they don't have to have the normal long wait time for an intake, that you know, they can kind of get streamlined in because there was this realization that people that are there in the hospital dealing with this crisis, that they're gonna need people to talk to and people that have obviously like our skills to be able to understand a little bit of that mental health side. 
And so they set up a crisis line that's manned by providers, psychology, psychiatry providers uh, throughout the week, and then give them a place to talk. And if it becomes like, like there's the awareness that they need more therapy, I've gotten some referrals that way. So people kind of come into my schedule. And Obviously like healthcare workers are experiencing the pandemic, just like everybody else who has to like go get groceries in the middle of a pandemic. But also we have pressures at work that are a little bit more unusual. Anything specific about like the healthcare worker experience that, that you've noticed or that your colleagues have talked about, about sort of how you think about approaching a healthcare patient or specific problems that the healthcare folks seem to be having more than the, the usual population? I feel very privileged that I've been able to work alongside primary care physicians and doctors and nurses and things like that in the system for so many years and different rotations that I've done. So for me, there's this very real knowledge that we're all sort of in such close contact with other human beings that there's this, you know, you, you, you carry that with you. I think that there's a space of saying sometimes for, for people that are in the healthcare industry, like they're not just carrying the weight of everything from their own life. They're carrying the weight from the people that they work with, you know, the patients. Mm-hmm. And so being able to give a space for that, it's a lot. I was reading a book recently about 18th century, 19th century Britain. And um, they had these things called, these people called sin eaters who were like these sort of outcasts in society. And their role was they would be paid to consume some, you know, like piece of paper that was said to sort of contain all of the sins of some richer person who had died, right? And they would carry those sins themselves and like let the other person into heaven kind of thing. And I was like, oh my, that, that, that actually jives a lot with what, what we do in healthcare, right? Like a part of our job is like, know the correct dosing of a diuretic, but a big part of our job is to be like, you are not gonna walk this road alone. Yes. I'm gonna be here to kind of carry you along. But that weight, you know, and that weight in a, in a pandemic where like you're scared for yourself, you're scared for your family, you're scared for your patient, you're carrying all of these burdens. I've been fortunate personally, I haven't had, you know, my life has not changed that dramatically, um, but even in the ways that it has, it's been quite stressful. And I, I can only imagine what, you know, folks in New York City working in the COVID ICUs there must, must be going through. So to have a resource of someone who has that clinical knowledge and the appreciation of the clinical thing, and is not just, you know, your friend that you can kind of vent to, I think is, seems so valuable. I mean, you probably need a little bit of both, but. You know, it's such an interesting space to be in, right? I often like view my, sometimes I'll tell people like, oh, this is like, my office is a room of lost baggage. You walk through the airport and there's that room that just has all those bags sitting there. But, (laughs) but then my office is the space that they can like come bring, we'll set it in the floor between us and we'll look through it and we'll dig through it. And, you know, then when they leave, they can leave it here because it's not my baggage. That's fine. It's fine for me. I think the difference is right. Like when you say that, like you think about it, somebody talking to their friend about it, usually their friend knows a lot of the same people knows their life has that different relationship. Like a therapy relationship is, is different. I'm there to listen to them and to, take that baggage. That's my job. So great. Well, thank you so much for taking so much baggage, baggage <laughs> in these times, storing the baggage in your uh, 
spare room in your home um, <laughs> while, uh, while all of this goes on. And I guess, you know, looking forward, you know, as, as time goes on, as this becomes the new normal or, you know, some hybrid of normal, what do you think you'll take away from this that'll inform kind of your practice going forward? Do you think video visits have a, have a place to stay for therapy? Is it easier for patients to talk to a therapist if they're in their own living room? Or do you think the trend will be to get, get people back in the office once the office reopens? I, do, I just don't see how it's going to go exactly back. I, I don't see. I think like what we've also realized is like, this is, it's really nice. I mean, some people, depending upon how they're feeling, it can be really hard to get to a therapist office, whether it be really a far drive or um, it's hard to even get out of bed maybe if the depression's really hard. Yeah. So I just think like there's going to be a space, you know, video sessions were already there, but now this is changing it. So everybody that was kind of hesitant has now had to do it. So mm -hmm. I don't think it'll be a big, like, I don't think it's going to be everything because I would prefer to have some, like I said in the beginning, how like the phone calls were easier with people that I had already sort of met face to face. I think that it would be really hard to have a whole video session and they have never met the person face to face. But yeah. I don't know. I mean, we're living in a new normal, so. I mean, it does say a lot that like nobody cancels anymore. And we've heard that on the, on the medical side as well. Like, you know, people used to sort of bank on, you know, some people wouldn't, they'd have to take the bus. They wouldn't be able to get the bus or like their car would break down. You Regularly, there would be gaps in your schedule. And now like everybody's, they're all at home. They're like ready to go. Yeah. In terms of access to care, like it, it, at least for those established patients, maybe it does, it does open a window for them. It's pretty cool. I mean, it would be those, those gaps. I mean, maybe, maybe it's like if, if I could do video sessions, but have more like planned gaps in my schedule. You have to build in a few more like breaks <laughs> in the day, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be nice. I, yeah. I'd, I'd do it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And gosh, I really hope we get to see you in person. Um, uh, that'd be awesome. Very soon. But at the very least, it's a delight to see you um, in your extremely well-lit uh, home studio <laughs> there. So. It, was, it was really good to see you too, John. Thanks to my great friend, Gwyn Shell, for coming on the podcast. You can find out more about her practice, find resources for UW Health's behavioral health program, and crisis numbers if you or someone you know needs urgent mental health help in the show notes. As we move back towards a more regular schedule in our clinical lives, we're going to be moving the schedule of the podcast back to a little less frenetic pace as well. Look for new episodes weekly for a while. Here's a poem about resilience in the face of adversity by Rudyard Kipling. It was written as a rousing anthem for a boy, but it applies just as well to anyone doing their best these days. It's called If. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about don't deal in lies, or being hated don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, 
If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the thing you gave your life to broken, and stoop to build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings, and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss, and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you if all men count with you but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with sixty seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. If you have an experience with COVID-19 you'd like to share or a question you want answered on the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on Twitter at J.E. Kohler. That's K-O-H-L-E-R. You can also send us an email at podcast at surgery.wisc.edu. If you want to hear about something other than COVID-19, our regular program is focused on the latest innovations in surgery, including interviews with the pioneers at its cutting edge. If you're new here, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Bonnie Farber, J.P. Swenson, and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was edited by J.P. Swenson. Special thanks to Nicole Jennings, Rebecca Minter, and everyone else in our department pulling together during this adventure. Until next time, be well, and stay in touch, friends. Remember, you can't stop the clock. This too shall pass.